there is a wireless mic that we are going to pass around to you momentarily so that you are able to ask questions and we're able to capture that for recording purposes so that we can hear both the question and Dr. Mbewe's answer. But I wanted to ask him to begin with if um, he would tell us how he came to faith in Christ. Thank you. Um, is my system working? Hello, 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 hello. Okay, good. <clears throat> yeah, um, the Lord brought me to himself um, in 1979. Uh, so we're really talking in terms of approximately 36 years or so ago. I had come to the end of my high school days and it was just before I went to university. If I could just quickly give you a background ground. Um, I had always been going to church. Uh, I grew up in a church-going family. My mom died when I was only nine years old. Her immediate elder sister took my two sisters and myself to uh, take us across the teenage years, which is a normal system back home uh, in the extended family system. And um, when I came back to dad's home after high school, I found two things. The first was uh, that dad had become an alcoholic. Uh, you can well understand, almost in one stroke, he lost his wife and his children, and basically was starting uh, life afresh. Um, I've since understood more details as to why he ended up that way, but that's beside the point. The second was my elder sister who had left me where I was to come back to dad's home a year earlier after the end of our own high school had become completely transformed. Uh, she, upon arrival back, uh, rather upon coming to dad's home, she went to university and got converted uh, during some evangelistic meetings there. So. I came home, found the whole place upside down in terms of the loss of uh, the family home that I once upon knew, once upon a time knew. But I found a sister who was rejoicing despite all that and speaking about the Lord in a very personal way. Um, loving, going to church, reading her Bible, praying. Uh, witnessing to us and I just realized there was something she had that I didn't have. Then while I was there, a friend of mine sent me an, a letter. I almost said an email, but those things didn't <laughs> exist then. Sent me a letter uh, in which he shared the gospel with me. He had also become a Christian a few months earlier and was really wanting to share his faith. So it was, that was the first time the gospel went past my defense mechanisms. And it was like a blow between my eyes. I, I, all my excuses fell flat. I knew I needed to do something. Mm. However, I somehow assured myself that I just need to change friends and start going to church more consistently. I tried that for about three to four months and failed miserably. Mm. So that's how I went from December 78 to March, April uh, 79. 
And I went back to the same letter that my friend had written, read it afresh, and was pointing me back to the cross uh, to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. And so that morning in my own bedroom, I knelt down by my bed and prayed to the Lord Jesus to save me. Um, not knowing how to pray, I ransacked, ransacked my sister's bedroom looking for something that would have a prayer on it. And I found a little tract entitled, Here's Happiness. And as I went through, I found a prayer at the back. So I prayed through it once, prayed through it a second time, threw it aside, and just cried to the Lord uh, to save me. And although I was expecting that perhaps I would um, be lifted into the third heavens with... <laughs> <laughs> that didn't quite happen. Uh, the one thing I can say is that the burden was lifted. And uh, I didn't realize how a big a change that was until, of course, with time, I began to look back and, yes, the Lord had brought me from darkness to light. And how did you come to sense a call to the pastoral ministry and to preaching the Word of God? Uh, mine is, is a bit of an unusual situation. I, I'm yet to hear anyone else, at least in our circle, speak in those terms. So I'll, I'll quickly explain. Within a year of my becoming a Christian, um, well, maybe slightly after a year, I... I began to just sense that God wants me to be a preacher. And you have to realize this is one year into the Christian faith. So I don't know my left from my right there. But often when I would be praying alone in my closet, I would just have this urge to take the things that I'm beginning to know and really share them with this world that is in ignorance. Now that bothered me. It bothered me because I thought I was just admiring my pastor's preaching. I just become, uh, in fact, I was, that was about the time I got baptized and joined this Baptist church. And uh, so I was rebuking myself for, for that, but it wasn't going away. So in our hall of residence, we used to have a Bible study on campus. And so I went to the leader of that Bible study group who was two years ahead of me in, ours, in, in the university. I put before him what I was going through. And um, just as an aside, I met him recently. I was preaching in the church where he's an elder, and he couldn't remember this. Absolutely <laughs> zero. <laughs> well, because I uh, was asked the same question, so I was sharing with the entire eldership. And he came to me afterwards and says, no, God totally erased it from my mind. <laughs> but anyway, he counseled me. And basically, if I could summarize, he said, it's one thing to know what God wants you to do. It's another to know when he wants you to do it. And therefore, you go to him and tell him what your own response is. And then walk with him and see how he opens doors to lead you into the work of ministry. 
I'll admit I was a little disappointed. I thought he would quickly say to me, here are a few Bible college brochures <laughs> and uh, go to this one or that one. Uh, but I'm grateful that he did because it gave me time to mature as a Christian so that my ministry was not just head knowledge, but I had been in it as a Christian. And it wasn't until another seven years afterwards that the door to enter into the pastorate at Kabwata Baptist Church opened. In the meantime, I had uh, finished my mining engineering studies and worked in the mines for three years. And somehow I thought I may not have the opportunity of going into Bible college first before becoming a pastor. So just before I went to work in the mines, I asked my church pastor to recommend to me one major textbook in each of the major courses that uh, would be taken in Bible college. So he recommended them. And in those days, we, we at least had a few uh, Christian bookstores. So I managed to buy a few. And while I was working in the mines, I was doing some self-study as well. So when the church called me, uh, although I went in with fear and trembling, and you have to appreciate also, I just hadn't been to Bible college. I was still single. I was only 25 years old and everything else. Now when I look at the 25-year-olds in my church, I wonder what on earth those leaders were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, there you are. <laughs> you mentioned our listening to good models of pastoral preaching, and I wonder if you would comment on the people who have influenced you. The preaching of your pastor obviously struck you as a young man. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there folks that were particularly influential on you or still continue to be influential on you as you listen to good pastoral preaching? Yeah, uh, first of all, the, the kind of preaching that my pastor was engaging in was extremely rare at that time in our country. He, he had studied, he had, he had gone to Scotland as a complete unbeliever, got converted there, answered God's call the ministry there, and he sat under expository preachers. So when he came to Zambia uh, and began pastoring, nobody else was doing expository preaching except him. So in that sense, I had a, a good privilege. I hadn't had to unlearn a lot of uh, things with respect to preaching. Um, but secondly, I found him going through the book of Romans, and he was constantly referring to people like Martin Lloyd-Jones. So that drew me into uh, reading Lloyd-Jones, and at that time, a number of tapes of his sermons were doing their rounds among students at university. And so would borrow, listen, and pass it on to someone else, and so on. So uh, I was definitely challenged by uh, Lloyd-Jones' effort at exegesis, being true to the text, and deliberately engaging a, a form of argument in bringing out those truths. Uh, and also just the, 
the warmth that was coming through, even in those steps, I didn't see him preaching. But you could tell at a certain point in his sermon, it was like a big jumbo jet that's just taken off mm. the runway. And you, you sense mm. something of that power. Uh, so, yes, that, that definitely had an influence on me. The other was the written sermons of C.H. Uh, Spurgeon. While I was a student at university, we used to have a morning and evening service. And at some stage, it wasn't throughout the five years I was there, but at some stage, a number of us decided instead of going back to campus and then coming back, all we would do is when the service is over and everybody has left, we unpack some sandwiches and eat while at campus. And then would all sit in the pews for about 30 minutes of siesta. So would doze off. And then when we wake up, one of us would preach. And I was often the one doing the preaching. And it was simply reading a Spurgeon sermon. That's all. <laughs> you know, and they, they had become fairly common. They were being printed and uh, sent over into our part of the world. And so that's what I would do. I would stand in the pew and there would be probably like uh, the eight-year and another eight-year guys nearby. And then I would be reading as if I'm preaching. <laughs> but again, that uh, helped to uh, put into me something of, um, on one hand, simplicity, but on the other, a, a way of teaching that in it, it was in itself beautiful, with appropriate picture language and applications and so on. So between these two, uh, Lloyd-Jones and Spurgeon, and then my own pastor uh, back home, so that's the third, I think I generally found myself, mm. so to speak. Mm. Do you have questions that you would like to ask Dr. Mbowe? Just hold your hand and we'll take the microphone to you and you can ask your question. Over the course of your preaching ministry, what's been most helpful in handling criticism of your preaching? Hmm. Yeah, uh, first of all, you know, I, I, I'm a pastor of a church and the, the people of God around me love my preaching so, <laughs> so so i'm not conscious that there are some people out there that are up in arms and wanting to tear me into pieces because of what i'm preaching uh, because i have a regular congregation that's slowly but surely growing and uh, yeah they they make me feel this is home this is where i ought to be and so that's definitely been a, um, a, a great help. Secondly, um, the Lord gave me a blessing that I would wish for anyone. And that is, he gave me two very close friends. Um, they're both pastors. And we knew each other before we got converted, all three of us. And then we all got converted around about the same year in different situations, probably a difference of about a year or two. And then we all entered the pastoral ministry 
within a year of each other in different towns altogether. Um, and the Lord has just given us a common sense of uh, truth and pursuit of truth. So I think we, we've sort of watched each other's back, so to speak. And uh, it's been a, a great help because every so often what I'm going through when I call one of them up, He's not only gone through it, but this is the way the Lord has enabled him to understand things. And the same way back to me. And so I think before we even got exposed to the people out here who are waging similar battles, in many ways there was a sense that I'm not the only one. You know, my friend is doing the same thing there, he's also doing the same thing there, and there is... The books that we've been reading uh, seem to suggest that what we're doing is, is the right thing. Uh, so when the international doors opened and we began to find that there were others who were waging the same warfare uh, outside Zambia, it simply added further encouragement to, to us. Perhaps just one more answer, and it's in terms of the right periodicals. Um, in those days, we thought there was only one magazine in the world that was a Christian magazine worth reading, and that was the Banner of Truth magazine. <laughs> because we used to get free copies regularly. And I think it was a great help because it, we sort of anchored outside the immediate air where the battle was taking place. Uh, the only difference is that the Banner of Truth magazine tended to, to have articles from a previous generation rather than current voices. But still, it was a great help because it sent the message home that we are trading where the sense of trod. And so even if the, the current voices are militating against what's happening here, um, most likely a few generations down the line, they will appreciate what we're doing. And so I think that, that proved a great help. Yep. Other questions? Yes. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I, I just a question for, uh, uh, for uh, preaching Bible book by book. So I calculate uh, even I preaching uh, three books a year would take me 22 years to preaching whole Bible. So I just wonder how did you uh, maybe share experience and wisdom to us if we are not preaching Bible book by book, how do we do that? You know? What's your strategy so we can understand? Thanks. Okay, thank you very much. Um, yes, I, I mentioned the fact that I had the privilege of being under an exposed preacher straight out of uh, my conversion experience, and that's really remained with me uh, all along. So the consecutive expository method is uh, what I have done, and a number of other uh, preachers now back home are, are also doing that. Our understanding is definitely not the fact that we are to make our way from Genesis to Revelation, um, or that I am the one who must finish the entire Bible uh, in 
in my specific uh, pastoral ministry. I think rather it is the fact that, <clears throat> first of all, when I'm doing a current series, I am also with two eyes. Remember I talked about one eye in the Word, another one in the world. And constantly praying to the Lord as to what the next series ought to be, which will be scratching where it's itching. So in that sense, when I then begin a new series, I'm not like a guy who has just walked out of heaven and knows absolutely nothing about what's happening. Uh, I'm conscious of the fact that uh, this is uh, what's, what's happening and that this particular book of the Bible uh, indirectly will be saying a lot concerning uh, the, this, either the current affairs in the nation, the current affairs in the world, or just the current affairs in the lives of the people that are within the church. Then I also try to balance, if I'm in the New Testament in the morning, then I try to be in the Old Testament in the evening services, uh, or vice versa, just so that God's people don't think that because we're New Testament believers now, you know, we, we just go to the Old Testament for illustrations, but that both testaments are relevant uh, to, to uh, our people today. So I, I also uh, seek to do that. Um, and then perhaps the, the third that I, I would um, throw in there is that it doesn't matter what I am or which part of scripture I'm teaching, I try to show the, the fabric of scripture in which those truths um, arise. Uh, so you would have noticed, for instance, even when I've been dealing with the subject here of pastoral preaching, I would sort of pick a little bit from Jeremiah, uh, um, whatever other Old Testament passage, and then still make my way into the Gospels and into either Acts or the, or the Epistles, so that there's a sense in which God's people are seeing uh, that this is one book in the sense that this is God communicating to us uh, from Genesis to, to the book of, of Revelation. Yeah, so it's in that sense that um, I think we do that. We do have also consecutive Bible readings in our church, and they are exclusively in the Old Testament, simply because we've realized that most of our people tend to read the New Testament a lot, and we want them to also have a what I would call a working knowledge of the Old Testament. And before anybody reads the particular chapter they are reading, uh, we provide them with a basic two to three sentences that show what that passage is about and at least one aspect of New Testament application. Um, again, it's, it's meant to augment the pulpit preaching so that God's people can see the whole Bible and be exposed to it. I think those would be some of the, uh, the, the answers. Um, according to your gifting, you, you may be a person who is sort of galloping through the Bible. Uh, others, according to their gifting, may be literally inching their way through you know, one book uh, for a longer period. 
And I think there all I would say is that you need to be comfortable in your own skin. I mean, God made you the way he made you. And uh, try and avoid um, being a, 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 a photocopy of, of others. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. <coughs> Uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, what does your sermon preparation process look like week by week? Um, what, are, what are some things that you found helpful and some things that you've made a habit as you prepare sermons? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good question. First of all, my sermon preparation really is not divorced from my devotional life in the sense that by the time I am settling on a particular book, that this is where I should preach from. It's likely to be a book that I have gone through during my devotional life, and consequently it's still fresh in my own heart, and I'm, I'm sensing its relevance to the people that God has uh, put under me. And often also it's quite a few months before I'm going to tackle it. So it gives me time again to either reread or study, or I'm in the part of the world where books are not relevantly, uh, readily available, and we don't know anything about getting sermons from Amazon.com. That's an animal that doesn't exist back home. So I, I then know, okay, I've got a few trips to the US or the UK, and you know, I'll try and use the opportunity to, uh, to get one or two commentaries that might come and help, and so on. So I think there's a lot that is already happening well before I, I uh, begin preaching. I would have already also sat with my fellow elders and said to them, brethren, um, this is the way I am thinking. I should go after the current series. And thankfully up to now, uh, there's always been an amen, you know, this is, this is uh, going to be great stuff, and so on. Uh, so at least I don't sort of just take the elders by surprise uh, when uh, we, we're changing into a new series. They, in a sense, already know and they're already praying with me. Okay, so once you've put all that behind you now and you, you come into the weekly, by virtue of the fact that I do consecutive expository preaching, in a sense, I know already where I'm coming from. And at the, soon after the previous preaching on Sunday, I tried to do the exegetical speed work for the next portion of scripture. And I generally am, am not, I'm uncomfortable until I, I feel as if the structure of the text with a sermonic thread running through it has been arrived at. And I try to do that as soon as possible in the week. And then I take a break. And I'll explain why. I'm, I'm the kind of preacher who, if I prepare my whole sermon, and then I have a lot of other things to do, and then get back to preaching that sermon, there's a disconnect I just don't like. So I tend to want to do the final fleshing out of my sermon as close to the time I'll be preaching as possible. Now, how close that will be obviously depends on how many sermons I'm doing. 
Um, so that's how come I generally tend to break my, my preaching. And secondly, I tend to find, I don't know about you, but I tend to find that when I have worked out the structure and a sermonic outline, somehow as I'm now dealing with the day-to-day -day things, I'm, I'm seeing illustrations. I'm seeing things that make me feel, aha, uh -huh, yeah, this sort of brings light to what I will be dealing with and so forth. Um, of course, I try, and I hope I've achieved it. I try to avoid using my own children and family life as an example. Uh, <laughs> just don't ask them about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I, I, I honestly think I, I, I think it's a, it's a bad habit. I think your family would like some level of, of privacy uh, rather than going, oh, no, dad. You know, that was supposed to only be in the bedroom or in the house. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I feel like if I could use the illustration from home, we have what we call village chickens. And basically, it's chickens that just wander around. You, you don't, they don't have a feeding trough. You don't put uh, chicken mush in a place for them to eat. They're always just scratching around and eating, scratching around, eating, and giving to their little, um, uh, little babies and so on. So uh, that's the way I feel across the week. I just find that I'm coming across nuggets of gold as, as time is going on, and they therefore enrich my preaching. Whereas if I hadn't dealt that initial spadework and with a sermonic theme, and then just try and do everything at the last minute, I, I probably would have missed some of those uh, lighters that the Lord would be bringing down my way. Um, I usually end up with initially maybe three to five commentaries, and if a few weeks down the line, a few commentaries have been declared redundant. You know, <laughs> they, they are just saying what everybody already knows. You know, uh, and then there'll be one or two that, wow, you know, they, this is a, a, a good commentator. So in the process, I don't waste my time, therefore, with, with, with all these others, although they'll still be on my bookshelf. Yeah, so those would be some of the answers that uh, I would give. Yes, thank you. How many sermons a week do you preach? Yeah, generally, they are strictly speaking two fresh ones. Okay. And that would be morning and evening service on Sunday. But also, I speak every week on radio. And then I also maintain a regular column in a newspaper. So, uh, strictly speaking, those would be the, the four major messages that I preach. I do a very brief commentary also for radio, but that's uh, very brief. I'll, I'll be preparing one, in fact, tonight, which is aired every Thursday at lunchtime. Um, but it's not as demanding. It's, it's simply the one foot in the world I was talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of just... Uh, biblical knowledge that finally is an application. Um, so those would be the main uh, messages that I would preach literally every week. There's a question up here. Share a little bit about the Reformation that took place there in Zambia. 
and how God raised up all you men about at the same time from Lusaka Baptist and how it's progressed and preaching the Word of God has brought about this revival that you're talking about also. Yeah, well, I'll try and summarize it because that's like opening uh, a box that will be very <laughs> difficult to close. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we're truly grateful to God for the fact that he raised us up for the times such as this back home. Um, in that at the time I was getting converted, evangelical Christianity in the English-speaking part of Zambia had only really been uh, around for uh, about 10 years and was largely through student work on, on various campuses among nursing students and also in various schools through Scripture Union and what is called IFES around the world and so on. Um, through that, a number of us uh, got converted and I was studying at the University of Zambia, which was in Lusaka, and Lusaka Baptist Church had an out a deliberate outreach to the university. They had a bus that would come and pick us up. And for a student, once you knock out travel costs, you've got them. And so that's how many of us found ourselves there. Uh, I mentioned that in the Lord's providence, around about that time, we, we got our first Zambian pastor for Lusaka Baptist Church, and that was 1978-79. He had left Zambia as a boy who grew up in a village, but there had been a Scottish couple that went to teach in Zambia in that village, and when they were, when they were going back, they asked his parents, if they could carry him with them. So the parents accepted, and that's how he, they were not Christians, by the way. That's how he went to Scotland, got converted, as I said. He, he listened to the, the Scottish divines uh, out there, uh, listened to individuals like uh, Lloyd-Jones himself that he's spoken about, and then he, he heard God's call and went to study for the pastorate in London and in due season became the pastor for Lusaka Baptist Church. And the year he became the pastor is the year I also joined that church. And uh, for the next three years, we found him in, or he inherited a series from my previous pastor uh, and at Romans chapter 5. And for the next three years, he inched all the way to Romans 8. Now, you, you, you have to understand that those three chapters, five, six, seven, oh, four chapters, five, six, seven, eight, I mean, they are the, the meat of the, the chemistry that takes place in the soul of a believer. And though I remember sitting in, I was always in the first pew, just in front of that pulpit, Listening to preaching that made me feel, wow, this is the greatest thing that anyone can ever do to declare these glorious truths. Well, unbeknown to me, I wasn't the only one feeling that way. There were quite a number of others that felt that way too. So as we're about to graduate, we, we all agreed that we should be meeting once a year 
to encourage one another in what we called Calvinistic Methodism. Now that came from our reading, you see, because in the process of following the trail of Lloyd-Jones, we stumbled across Ban of Truth, and then from Ban of Truth, we stumbled across so many other authors that they were republishing. And we got to a point where you go to you go to student allowance and went to the Christian bookshop, and all you were doing was just turning books around looking for the <laughs> George Whitfield logo. Yeah. And as you'd found, you just keep putting aside. <laughs> Finally, go to the counter and say, "I've only got so much money, so <laughs> please start counting." When you get to that level, uh, cut off. And that's how we took the books home. And it wasn't until you were home that you now began to say, okay, so who's the author? <laughs> and so forth. And we, we did that for about three years, I can assure you. Even when we began working, I was in the same apartment with Cholwe, the, one of the other pastors now. And what we would do is when we get paid, we would say, okay, how much do we need to survive on? Okay, this is how much we need, both of us. Then the balance, one of us would then go out of town to the, the place where there would be a good Christian bookshop and then do exactly the same thing and just get the books, get the books, put them on the counter, count the money and say, this is how much I have. So just... Uh, Make sure you don't go beyond. And then put them in a box and make your way all the way back to the, to the, um, the flat, the apartment. Put them on the table. And then first of all, each one of us would go through them. Just so that we know what on earth we've brought. Then we would start one for you, one for me. So I would say, okay, the first one I want is this one. <laughs> and you'd also look at all this and say, I'll get this one. <laughs> And I've never forgotten on one occasion there was one book remaining. And I'm the one who had traveled. And he said, now, Conrad, look, I know you have the right <laughs> to take this book. But please, may I have it? Now, I'll admit I was not as sanctified. <laughs> so I just said, Sorry, brother, next time. And, uh, I'll still go. <laughs> yeah, so, some sanctified greediness there. Yeah. Well, then, you know, the, a number of churches be, began to be planted by people that were coming from Lusaka Baptist Church who could not be at home in these churches where they were just finding topical preaching and so forth, in fact, less than topical preaching, watery sermons. And so the pressure began to mount on the Saga Baptist Church to start churches where these groups could then begin worshiping together, which they then gave green light to, and about four to six such churches began all over the country, and then they needed pastors. And that's how come they then go to us to start getting into pastorate. And that's how we all became pastors, more or less at the same time and so forth. So that's, that's the story. And from those six or so churches, we now have slightly over 40 scattered all over the country. Let's express our appreciation to Dr. Thank you. Um, 
I'm going to ask Dr. Wingard if he would come up and pray, and I'm going to go ahead and take Dr. Mbewe back to the chapel where we will have our third John Reed Miller lecture talk as close to 1 o'clock as we possibly can. And so if you'll let us get out of the room just like we did before, uh, Dr. Wingard will dismiss you with prayer, and we'll see you over at Grace Chapel. Well, let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as the church's servants for his sake. We pray that you'll take uh, these words that we've heard today and use them to encourage us in our preparation for ministry. We pray that you'll make us mighty in the word, and that you'll give us a great love for your people and a passion to make Christ known. And we ask all this in the name of our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.